everybody, and welcome to Nerd Alert! All right, before we get started, I want to take a moment to say that as residents of Los Angeles County, we acknowledge our presence, including virtual presence, on the traditional, ancestral, and unseated territory of the Gabrielino Tungva people. Hi, everyone. This is Caroline, and I would like to acknowledge that I am speaking to you as a resident of the unceded territories of the Ramaytush Ailoni, the original peoples of the San Francisco Peninsula. I am your host, Bridget, pronouns she, her, hers. This is Jen with a G as in what a great gal. She, her, Chicago. Yeah. <laughs> Um, this is Caroline, and I am also she, her, hers. All right, so today we will be talking about Marvel villains. This was uh, Caroline's suggestion as a topic, so Caroline, why don't you kick us off here? Okay, so this is a topic that has kind of fascinated me for a long time, not just because uh, I've watched the Marvel movies some of them multiple times and kind of obsessed about them a little bit. I don't know if you can tell, (laughs) (laughs) but uh, because one of the things I keep hearing over and over and over again is, oh, Marvel has bad villains. Marvel's villains aren't memorable. Marvel's villains aren't complicated. They're not X, Y, Z. And that really makes me wonder sort of what is it that we want in villains? What is it that people want in villains? And I think that there's a bit of a, I think that the issue might come from a disconnect because I think we're taught sort of in terms of literary fiction and in terms of kind of, I guess, complicated or mature storytelling that there, everything needs to be in shades of gray and you can't really have good guys and bad guys. It needs to be more complicated. But Mm -hmm. problem with that is that we are dealing with superhero media, which is somewhat exaggerated, which is also about heroes and about the question of what does it mean to be a hero? And also part of the fun and part of the catharsis and part of the kind of the way these ideological questions are solved through fistfights, which is kind of what superheroes do, is that there is a competing ideology or a competing um, way of being or a competing personality type that the main character, the hero, has to defeat, and they are a villain. And so I think that it can sometimes be a mistake to, you know, have a villain who wants to blow up the world but try and say, oh, they're complicated because um, they had a sad childhood. There we go. That explains everything. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so when you're dealing with these very kind of arch and often archetypical, archetypal characters, I think, yeah, I think sometimes the villains do not need to be super complicated. Um, the other thing is that, you know, heroes can mean a lot of things, especially if you're just taking hero to mean the protagonist. Um, one mm-hmm. of the, sorry to, if I'm getting us a little off topic, but if m- many of you might not know about something called the American Film Institute or the AFI. And one of the things they did a few years ago was to kind of make a series of lists of the top 10 most memorable and popular or like top 100 most popular and memorable American films. And they did one for each genre. And they also did one for like most memorable popular movie quotes, but they also did heroes and villains. And 
I would recommend taking a look at that list because it is super interesting. There's a lot of characters on there that you probably will all recognize from classic films. Um, and one of the things you notice is that the people on the heroes list are extremely diverse. I mean, you know, not in terms of their ethnic background or their gender. Um, that would be ridiculous. Yeah, that's ridiculous. So I just want to make that clear. Uh, they are really, really not diverse as far as that is concerned. But they are diverse when it comes to the uh, various different types of white guys who range from the very good to people who you're like, wait, is, is that a hero? Does that qualify as a hero? He's not a good dude. Um, so the idea of a hero can mean a lot of things. But the villains if you, on that list are most of them pretty simple. You know, they're pretty bad. They're pretty straightforward, but they are very, very memorable. And that I think is, is important. They're very memorable. They pose a real threat and they're characters who really challenge the heroes of their story or sometimes eclipse the heroes of their story. And sometimes that's a, a bad thing. Sometimes it means the hero is a little underdeveloped, um, but sometimes it just means that that character is the real focus. So um, yeah, that's just something that I kind of wanted to, that's a question I wanted to ask us, uh, to begin with. Like, what do we look for in a villain? What makes a good villain for a superhero movie specifically? Well, if we're talking about just in the comics, I would say colorful capes. Big time, um, big time. <laughs> twirly mustache. No, um... <laughs> <laughs> You know, I mean, that is a really good question and one that I, I have I need to give more thought to, honestly, because, like, you know, I think it is definitely more interesting when a villain has, like, like some nuance or that you you're kind of think, like, oh, they kind of have a point. Like, they, they can be, like, like, memorable in that way for me. But at the same time, like, some of my favorite villains are the ones who are, like, outright ridiculous and, like, terrible <laughs> at even being evil or at their harebrains or, you know, at all their schemes. <laughs> you know, I think of, like, um, well, Megamind's maybe more of a pr protagonist, I guess, in his movie. Or, like, um, or like Dr. Draken from Kim Possible. You know, like, sort of the more, like, yes. ridiculous type. You know, but they're memorable and distinct in that way, right? And I'm like, you're total, you're completely incompetent at your evil job, <laughs> you know, <laughs> um, and that can be fun in its own way for me. Um, you know, um, I mean, I, when I think of a villain, I think, I think the biggest thing is like being a thorn in the hero's side, you know, that's like the, that's like the biggest thing, you know, that it's like that they're an obstacle to, to whatever the quote unquote goal is of like the story of the protagonist and their journey you know, and, you know, I, I think that's, like, essentially what I think of when it comes to villains that, you know, in terms of personalities and stuff, it, it, it doesn't have to be, like, the whole, like, cackle and, like, you know, are they are they stand out in a different way in terms of, like, their personality or, like, something like that. Uh, but the main thing, I think, I for a function in terms of a villain is, like, you know, do you make things hard for you know, the audience, you know, and us like wanting, you know, whatever it is to happen for the main character, you make it hard for the main character to succeed in their goals or what have you. Yeah. Yeah, I can see that. Like, for me, I've loved all kinds of villains. I've liked the ones that are stupid and ridiculous. And I like the ones who genuinely scare you. Like, when I was uh, watching 
one of the animated Spider-Man shows, you know, one of the 90s ones, I believe, which stuck true to the comics, let me tell you. But some of the villains, like, were pretty ridiculous, you know. Some of them genuinely scared you. Like, Venom used to terrify me because that was a guy who was, like, Spider-Man, like, in similar powers, but maybe slightly more strength and actually gave Peter Parker a run for his money. Like, this was a guy who not only, like, could beat Spider-Man in combat, but was also the kind of villain that, like, hurt Peter Parker as Peter Parker, stalked him in his home, threatened Aunt May, Mary Jane, his friends, all without not having to do a thing. Didn't even have to be overtly threatening, would just stalk them and, like, arrive at Peter's place and be like wow, your aunt is so nice, you know, doesn't have to say a thing other than that. And oh my gosh, it would give me so much anxiety. So villains like that, who genuinely give the heroes a challenge, like are amazing for me. Also, like, I like the kind of villains that really make the hero think about themselves, you know, the ones that think like, shoot, like, one of my favorite comics was Sonic the Hedgehog growing up. And there was actually this whole evil alternate universe where everyone's like the opposite of what they were. And it's pretty general and basic, of course. But at some point, the protagonist Sonic is up against his evil clone Scrooge. And Scrooge is just like, you know, like, you're so lame and stupid. But, you know, it's funny because, like, all it takes is one bad day and you'll be just like me. But then Sonic retorts by saying, actually, no. If you had a little selflessness, a little decency, and you would be just like me. And that got Scrooge to think like, oh, crud, you know, I'm not like a standout villain. No, I'm like my mortal enemy here. And it gave him a scare, you know, and yet the two are so evenly matched, you know. So villains like that always give me pause. The ones who make the heroes reflect on themselves or when the villains kind of take a step back and be like, okay, this person's kind of a challenge for me. You know, I kind of want to break them or I I think I want them on my side or whatever the case may be. So villains like that have always been noteworthy to me personally. Yeah, never underestimate the power of a good evil universe. Um, I'm a huge fan of that. <laughs> so Nice. Um, but but yeah, that's a good point that villains, you know, oftentimes do present a foil for the hero. They, you know, sometimes will have the similar, you know, the hero's powers or they'll have similar background, but something separates those two, you know, something makes uh, the, the villain who they are and the hero who they are. And I think that that can be an interesting dynamic in and of itself, even if maybe the villain is not super interesting. You know what quote comes to my mind just now? Um, I don't know if you've ever heard of it, but like for a villain, like the like in a villain's mind, they are the hero of their own story. Yeah, yeah, that's a good one. That's definitely one that's very popular in screenwriting circles, um, and that I think that plays into this idea that the villain is, you know, sometimes a, a strong villain can just be strong because they're very, very motivated. They're very committed to their goals. Um, but, you know, at the same time, I think that, you know, we're talking about kind of ridiculous villains. It's like there are definitely some villains out there who are fun because they know that they're villains, you know, and they're yeah. Yeah, they're reveling in being villains. 
Um, oh, I love those. They're like trying really hard to be villains and they're failing at it. Um, <laughs> yeah. You know, that's, that's something to, to consider. All right. Wow. Well, any other criteria we should talk about before we get started? So I personally have kind of a little, I guess, three points that are not necessarily like a, I don't know, it's, it's always hard to break down art into like a scoring system or something. Um, but, you know, just maybe three sort of general categories I, I kind of like to think of. Um, I, I like to think, okay, question number one, you know, is the villain memorable? You know, are they fun? Are they super scary? Do they have something that means that you actually remember what their name is after the movie's over? And it doesn't have to be, you know, they could be that they're complicated, but it could also be that they just have an amazing costume or like the actor did such a, a great job that they stick with you. Um, so that's that's the first one for me. The second one is, do they you know, really challenge the protagonist? Do they actually cause them problems? Do they make them rethink their worldview or make them question who they are? Um, do they actually, you know, pose a real threat and, and really get the conflict going? And then number three for me is, do they fit within the context of the story? You know, does it make sense to have this kind of villain in this story? Do they actually add something to the plot? Could they, you know, just be replaced by, or I don't know, random generic doomsday bad guy, and it would be the same <laughs> thing? Like they'd be replaced by an evil ficus. <laughs> yes, there we go. That's perfect. You're right. This is the uh, the the our version of the sexy lamp here, the evil ficus. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. All right. Great. Well, with that criteria in mind. <laughs> Uh, let's go. Let's go movie by movie here for for villains. Then first chronological order: um, Iron Man. We got Obadiah Stane, aka Iron Mugger, aka Jeff Bridges, the actor. This Thoughts. guy, aka <laughs> oh my gosh, aka the world. Am I allowed to swear? <laughs> I just assume you were allowed to swear. <laughs> okay, good. Because yeah, that is the world's biggest douche. Like this guy literally is there for Tony's life, you know, acting as like a father figure to him after his own father like just sucked at his job or whatever. And you know, he could have literally let Tony continue that rich playboy millionaire style. It would not have hurt his chances of taking over the company. It truly didn't, but no. No, he's just like Nah, I need this spoiled kid to die and instead sends a bunch of terrorists after him instead of doing his own dirty work. This guy sucks. Yeah, I don't really have much to add to that. I mean, yeah, I don't. <laughs> I stain, I think, is kind of interesting because, I mean, on the one hand, I find it sort of frustrating that we never hear about him again if he was such a, like, pivotal figure to Tony and Tony ended up having to kill him. Like, you'd think that that would leave an impact on someone, even if that person did betray you. Um, so that kind of frustrates me. But in terms of the character himself, um, I really do think he works very well for the movie he's in. Uh, I like Jeff Bridges' portrayal a lot because I think 
Jeff Bridges is an actor who's kind of known for playing laid back, more kind of fun characters. I mean, not always, um, but like sort of grounded, you know, down to earth people a lot of the times. And Obita Sting kind of gives off that impression at first, but it's like so much of it is a facade. Um, and that's what's interesting about him is just how uh, good he is initially at manipulating people but at the same time as jen pointed out like man he's putting in a lot of effort for something that could have been so much easier like (laughs) just kind of leave pony to his own devices and he wasn't paying attention to anything so he could have just done whatever with the company and he didn't have to pretend to care about tony you know he didn't have to pretend uh he liked him and he didn't have to try and get him killed it's just like He's some real overkill going on there in terms of his what he's up to and his plans. And it's like, I think he, he, yeah, he just put too much work into his evil plan for his own good, you know? He put in the extra effort to be an a-hole, truly. Oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, and it's, and he was already doing a lot of stuff on the side with Stark Industries that Tony wasn't aware of, you know, in terms of the weapons exports, which, like, haunts Tony for a long time afterward. Yep. Um it's all of us so <laughs> you know in terms of like reverberations you still feel that you know because i because i think too about like i think of like the maximoff twins and sokovia and you see like the stark Industries emblem on you know on the weaponry you know like the, there like there's like a sort of ripple effect on what he does that that's bigger than iron man in and of itself which is interesting yeah, yeah. definitely and that's interesting when you bring that up because in Age of Ultron, like when he sees the weapons, Tony's like, oh, that was never my life. And it's like, no, that was, dude, you know. Um, <laughs> but it just, yeah, Obadiah Stain raises a lot of questions about like what was going on with Stark Industries and like how hard did he even have to try to hide some of the stuff he was doing. Um, and then, yeah, he, I think he ultimately is more interesting as just like a very, very nasty businessman um, than he is when he kind of gets his like ironmonger suit that looks kind of goofy. Um, but, you know, I think he does, he does work for the movie and for the tone of the movie um, very well. But yeah, he just, he just leaves me with a lot of questions, I guess. <laughs> I, I think personally for a first MCU villain, I think he had a good impact. Yeah. Solid start. Yeah, solid start. Uh okay. Uh what about what about Incredible Hulk? Okay, I haven't watched Incredible Hulk still. We keep bringing this movie up and I still haven't watched it. Who can speak to Emil Blonsky the Abomination? I can. I watched the movie. Uh Caroline, okay. have you watched the movie? I have not, so this is all on you, Jen. Oh, uh, no pressure. <laughs> all right, so Emil Blonsky, a.k.a. Abomination, played by actor Tim Roth. He is literally the cliche overeager officer who just takes things too damn far. Like, you're thinking that's going to be uh, Thaddeus Ross, you know, knowing his history in the comics and his animosity towards Bruce Banner. You're thinking Ross is going to be the one that goes too far. That's what you're thinking. But then you get this guy, Blonsky, who's just like, no, this is wrong. We must destroy it. And then inserts gamma particles into himself because reasons. You know, literally hypocrite, man. 
He's like, this guy, this guy, he needs to be destroyed. And then injects himself the same way and becomes this thing that can evenly match the Hulk. So yeah, he is way too overeager. And you see signs of it, like, throughout the Incredible Hulk. Like, goes with all of Ross's ways to track down Bruce Banner. Tries to take it a step further, you know. And you're thinking, okay, is he going to be like one of those villains that's just kind of like a side villain, but is a real pain in the ass and you just want to slap him once and be like, go sit in the corner. But (laughs) no, this is this is the the big bad who like uh, Bruce Banner has to fight at the climax, you know, the one that even Ross is just like, oh, man, I did not want this. And it's like, no, duh, you're trying to help like get this scientist who literally turns into a raging monster. And this guy's idea is to become a raging monster himself. Yeah, no kidding, it goes too far. You know, so this guy, in terms of memorable villains, i he's not very memorable. I literally had to look him up for this list. Like, I remembered Abomination, but that was it. I'm like, he had a name before, right? I, I just can't... Cl- Keep calling him cliche soldier in my head, you know? He had a name. <laughs> so, yeah, if you gals ever do get around to watching it, I'm pretty sure you'll forget this guy's name like an hour after you've watched it. Guaranteed. Yeah. Okay. And that's a good sort of point you bring up. We're already starting to see this motif of um, these characters who are essentially just an evil version of the main character. And it, I think it's going to start to get a little repetitive after a while. And again, like the hero and the villain are oftentimes supposed to be foils. But if like the only point being made is like, well, what if the hero had these same powers, but had like zero scruples? Um, I don't (laughs) think that's that interesting personally. Um, Yeah. If it's like, well, just they've got the same power as the hero, so they can fight the hero toe to toe, but they just, you know, are totally out of control. Yep. Like if they would have kept Ross as just the villain, because, you know, the way he hunted down Bruce was very aggressive. And the only reason I didn't even really mention him as a villain is because from an objective standpoint, you get it. There is a guy who can literally destroy and level a whole city, a whole state, you know, in hours. I don't blame him for being spooked, especially since Bruce doesn't really have control over the Hulk, you know? And in the movie, like, this whole thing started because, like, Bruce accidentally cut himself while he's working at this obscure job, and his blood turns out to be poisonous. Like, uh, Stan Lee's cameo, like, drank a soda that happened to have Bruce's blood and collapsed. So yeah, legitimate fear. Ross, I get it. Did you take it too far? Yeah, a little. But would most governments do it? Yeah. But then Blonsky, man, whatever. Like, he served his purpose, you know. I do like watching monster movies with them just crashing into each other. It's awesome. But otherwise, I am not going to remember his name. I probably won't remember his name, like even after we're done with this podcast. I'll be like, oh yeah, Abomination. The hell's his name again? <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. a bad sign. Um, but that is a good point you bring up with Ross because he kind of continues to be a character 
in the MCU, but he never really kind of like becomes a full on. He's always kind of antagonistic, but he never becomes like a full on villain. Um, but that's a good point you make about the Incredible Hulk that like Ross, if he was the primary antagonist, could raise some good questions about like, at what point, you know, do you balance one person's life, you know, Bruce's life against um, the potential lives that he could destroy, you know, if the Hulk is allowed to just kind of run around and do his Hulk thing. Um, so, so that, you know, is a more, to me, a more interesting conflict. Yeah, well said. Definitely. Well, you know, Caroline had an amazing insight, even though she's never seen this movie in her life. Yeah. <laughs> Are we oh. surprised? No, not at all. No. I'm just piggybacking off of what Jen said. <laughs> uh, all right. All right. So next up we have Iron Man 2. Um, you know, all right. So there's two villains in this one. Justin Hammer, played by Sam Rockwell, and I, uh, Yvonne Banco, Whiplash, played by Mickey Rourke. I think Justin Hammer is very funny. <laughs> like, I, I remember him because he's ridiculous. I remember the ex-wife. I remember, you know, him strutting across the stage and like him just be- being like totally ridiculous. <laughs> um, <laughs> and then, you know, Banco, I remember well, having like, I don't know, revenge daddy issues. Uh, yeah. I, Iron Man 2 is like kind of a fun movie. Like, I didn't hate it, um, but it's just very there's just not a lot of substance there and not even in a, like, you know, it's a candy movie type of a thing. It's more like a, I don't know, like a rice cake maybe where you're like, okay, that was a fine snack, but I want a real snack. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And then I think part of the problem is that the conflict with Banco just isn't very compelling. You know, they're clearly trying to have um, this angle of like, oh, you know, Vanko has issues and dads and relationships with dads and he's angry. Um, But, you know, there's no, like, interrogation of why. I mean, part of it is we don't know what really was going on with Howard and Vanko's father because it's like, well, it could very well have been that Vanko's dad was working for Hydra or Leviathan or one of the covert organizations that, you know, was against S.H.I.E.L.D. in this era. I mean, I don't think that's too ridiculous considering what we see in Agent Carter. Um, But at the same time, it's like, well, maybe Howard did just make a mistake or he was overly zealous. And so this is his fault. So it's just it's hard to say what the movie is trying to communicate about um, this whole relationship, really, and about Vanko. And again, I think it would have been way more interesting if there was some kind of like Tony has to either reconcile with Vanko or deal with him if they want to make him a sympathetic villain. But if they just want him to be a straight up bad guy, I think they spend a little too much time being like, well, um, his childhood sucked and his dad and stuff in revenge. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, Vanko just does not work for me for a, as a villain. Also, he has two, like, electrical whips, and that's, like, all I remember about his, like, villain costume. (laughs) That's all you need to know. 
they they don't even seem that effective as weapons, you know. They just kind of seem more uh, like they get in the way than anything else, you know. Yeah, like for me, Vanko had potential to be a good villain for the Iron Man sequel. Like, think this. We last saw Tony Stark revealing to the world that he's Iron Man and he's ready to atone for his mistakes, his father's mistakes, yada yada. So yeah, it's only natural that a villain from his past or was affected by his past come forward. All right, great. I have no problem with that. Especially since the villain has electrical whips that should actually kind of go against Tony's suit a bit, you know, like maybe get it to malfunction or at least cause some damage, you know. It, yeah, that's a good all point. the pieces are there. His suit, then he could actually, you know, cause him some real problems. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The potential's there. It just wasn't executed properly. You know, they just the writers had all the pieces and were like, let's just put it in random order. Why the hell not? Yeah, let's do this. I don't know. Potential wasted, but it it's fine. It's fine. The animated Iron Man series kind of fixed that, which I highly recommend. By the way. Uh, in terms of Vanko, or yes, Vanko, they had him in the animated Iron Man series, and much better played. Thank you very much. Well, can uh, you explain how? Because I'm curious. Well, this is uh, Iron Man Armored Adventures, old, oh, yeah, I've seen old animated shows. That one. Um, that one is actually really fun. I like that. Yeah, definitely. If you all can stream the show somehow, definitely watch it. But yeah, uh, Vanko was there and he actually did the things I said where he caused damage to Tony's suit, you know, like when he's first introduced, you know, Tony's he's kind of cocky, you know, he's a teenager in the show and he's just like, yeah, I'll take you down, you know, and then Vanko's just like, oh, we'll see about that and causes some real damage to the suit where he actually does need help from Rhodey, you know, if memory serves correctly. And so... Tony's just like, okay, we got to take a step back. We got to figure something out here because I cannot literally like die in this metal suit that cannot move because electricity short circuited me, you know? Mm -hmm. So he honestly made a really good impression in the show, you know, and brought up again, the things that I mentioned. And when he does appear a couple more times, he does have something different with the whips, you know, all electrical, of course, but he, he puts them to good use when he does show up. It's, Definitely better done than Iron Man 2. Yeah. Well, that's good to know. Yeah, I, I've not seen a huge amount of that show, but I actually really enjoy it. I think they do some really creative things with um, with some of the Iron Man villains who traditionally, I mean, again, I haven't read a whole lot of Iron Man comics, but my understanding is that the general consensus is his rogues gallery is not especially strong. Um, mainly because it's just a bunch of other people in suits. Um, but <laughs> it's interesting to see the way sort of elements of that have been reincorporated into the MCU. Um, also, like, you know, Agent Carter kind of takes some Iron Man stuff and kind of um, adds it to uh, Peggy's story and Howard's story. Um, so that's kind of interesting, but... You know, um, if I may go on like a fan fiction tangent, um, <laughs> I always kind of wonder that they never did, considering that like Tony's relationship with his dad is really important, right? And we know from Agent Carter that Howard is has an extremely irresponsible romantic history. Let's ha- I'll put it like that. Um, why does Tony not have a bunch of half siblings who are angry about not getting that Stark money? You know. <laughs> 
Logic, folks. Like logic. Yeah, think about it. Maybe sometime in like the 1970s or 80s, um, or probably you know, depending on how we want to paint Howard, either before his marriage to Maria or after, he has an affair with a black widow. She leaves, doesn't tell him that, you know, she had his kid and the kid grows up in Russia and comes back and wants revenge and is angry that they didn't get, again, all that sweet, sweet Stark money um, because Howard's their dad. And then they start fighting Tony and Tony's like, wait, this is my brother and my sister. Like, I don't want to fight them. I, you know, we should like team up and maybe be friends. And also then, you know, you could have another character to bounce off of and, also, potentially, you know, if you want to uh, kick off some drama down the line, say in Iron Man 2, Vanko is like his long lost half brother, kill him Ooh. in Iron Man 3 or Avengers or something. And bingo, there you got like Mad Tony out for revenge. Wow. That would have been so awesome. Huh. Yeah. Anyway, that's the thing. I don't know. I, I kind of enjoy plots where like the villain turns out to be family or family is the villain, even though I am kind of sick of villain dads because like villain dads usually just have to get killed. But in good examples, I feel like family villains can be really compelling because like the character has to work through really complicated feelings um, about the villain because it's like they're not just some rando who's taken a shot at them. It's like that's their sister or that's their dad or that's their brother, you know. Yep. Mm. Oh my gosh, yes. Um, so anyway, that that's my fan fiction tangent about what I would have done with Vanko. Um, but <laughs> I, I also agree that Hammer is a lot of fun. And as like a secondary villain, um, I think he works very well. Again, like having a funny kind of goofy villain is a good choice for the Iron Man series. They're kind of action comedies. Um, I, I love Sam Rockwell and everything, so I'm happy to see him in the MCU. Um, and yeah, I think Justin Hammer's a lot of fun and works as a backup villain, but I think it could have used a stronger main villain, um, to drive the actual plot, but. Agreed. Yeah. 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 And then the other missed opportunity I kind of wanted to touch on with Iron Man 2 was that. Apparently, there was a lot of talk and Favreau, one of the reasons he got frustrated was because he kind of wanted to dramatize the demon in the bottle storyline from the comics that dealt with Tony's alcoholism. Um, so that I think would have, to me, I would have been really interested to see Favreau's take on that because I feel like that could have resulted in a much more personal story and a much more like character driven one. But at the same time, I also see how, like, uh, you know, somebody at Marvel was like, um, yeah, I don't know. That sounds kind of like heavy and weighty and not very actiony. So let's have a guy with whips. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can see that, too. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, we have to remember this was the fledgling Marvel Cinematic Universe. It was definitely something that they were still trying to figure out and were worried might fail at this point, you know. I mean, it was passable. The villains were passable, as was the movie. So that's all <laughs> I have to say about that. Let's see. I think maybe I'm going to give Hammer an A and Vanko like a C- minus or something. So it gets a <laughs> overall for villains. Cool. I didn't think we'd give Hammer such high points, but when I really think about it, I'm like, yeah, no, I mean, he, he serves his purpose really well. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, okay, so then next up we've got uh, Thor, 
So this one's more of a of, of a tricky tricky one, right? I mean, we're talking about the whole family as villains things, um, in terms of you know Loki and and Odin. So we want to talk yeah. about that. Um. Okay. So it's it's tough to talk about the first Thor for me in isolation. Um, because one of my issues with the Thor movies is that I feel like the characterization is pretty inconsistent um, throughout. And I mean, this also applies to the Avengers movies where Thor and Loki show up. Um, so just kind of in the context of the first Thor movie, um, I would definitely say that like the person who's set up as the villain is Loki, as in like this is his sort of start of darkness Um, but I think as we get further and further into the Thor movies, it becomes more and more apparent that Odin is, if not the big bad, Odin is a reoccurring source of conflict in this universe. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, where do we start with him? Like, without rehashing the whole, uh, terrible Marvel dads. (laughs) Yeah. Like you mentioned before, Bridget. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. Um, I'm going to throw my two cents in about Odin and um, apologize to both of you guys because you just heard me say this, but I want to say it on the podcast because uh, <laughs> I haven't said it yet in a form that's just been recorded for posterity. Um, so for me with Odin, the issue with Odin is, again, the inconsistency in terms of how he's portrayed, how we're meant to view him, and also his own actions. And I think at the end of the day, the way I'd characterize Odin is that he's a hypocrite. He is someone who, for a lot of his reign as king, you know, carved this path of destruction across the multiple realms, taking things you know, back to Asgard. Uh, with his daughter, um, who we'll talk about later. And then in the first Thor movie, you know, he talks about like, oh, yes, we fought the Frost Giants and we won. And then it's revealed that he took one of the the king's son back to Asgard for he claims because like, oh, they just they just left him behind. So I had to. It was a good thing. But like, it really feels like Odin took a political hostage to me. It feels like he picked up the king's son because he's he wanted to raise him in Asgard and make him loyal to Asgard and potentially if he had to kill him if the frost giants attacked again. And Odin, I'm not saying that that's canon in the movies because Odin never acknowledges that's what he did, but that's what it feels like he did to me. He basically feels like a character who acts with kind of the morality and the mindset of like a medieval or like a Viking warlord but wants to be a good person by like modern standards or the movies want to see him as a good person by modern standards when he is not. So, and then there's also this whole issue of Loki when he finds out he's a frost giant freaks the hell out. And like a lot of people are like, Oh, Loki's upset because he's adopted. And it's like, yeah, you know, you probably should tell your kids they're adopted before they're like, a thousand years old or something. Um, <laughs> but it's like, I don't think the thing that really drives Loki over the edge is that he's adopted. And I also don't think that like, you know, most people who find out they're adopted late in life do not go on killing sprees. Um, I think the thing that drives him over the edge is that he's been taught that frost giants are like mindless monsters his whole life. 
you know, and that's what's done the damage. But that's my interpretation. No, I can definitely see that. Like, you are literally told one thing your whole life, and it turns out you're the thing that your whole, like, planet basically despises. Like, Frost Giants were probably, like, ghost stories and scary stories to keep bad Asgardian children in line, but the adults know that there's some truth in that, and Loki grew up believing that, only to find out, well, crud, I'm one of them. And he probably did pick up on Odin's, like, reason, like, no, you kidnapped me. Like, for what? Political gain and Odin, you're my son. And Loki's just like, huh, yeah, right, you know? Which I truly don't blame him for. I don't blame him for being upset. Would I have uh, taken things as far as him? No, no, but, you know, that that's just me. Point is, Loki has a right to be upset. Yeah. I think he has a right to be upset. I don't think he has a right to, like, wipe out his own people, um, you know, but I do think he has <laughs> no. his dad. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, genocide seems to be, uh, genocide and colonization are, like, the staples of the Asgardian royal family. Yep. Yep, they got a problem with that. Um, and, I mean, I think that that's one of the things that, you know, it's not really focused on or apparent in the first two Thor movies, and we're getting ahead of ourselves by talking about... I, I am. I'm the one who keeps getting ahead of our, myself by talking about Ragnarok. Um, but I think it's because Ragnarok is the film that really does try and confront this idea of colonialism as being kind of the this deep uh, rot within Asgardian society and the Asgardian royal family. And that's what makes Thor's conflict with his family and his journey... Um, more compelling, I think, is that Thor has an ideology that he is trying to change um, or he is trying to fight against or he is trying to, like, um, you know, keep his society away from. And I think that that's one of the the good things about, you know, the thing about Thor as a hero, like he's not a hero because he can throw a hammer around. I think in the end he becomes a hero because he knows when to change his mind and also knows to look at his own culture and see the flaws in it and look at his own family and see the flaws in it. You know, he doesn't just toe the party line. No, that's yeah, a that very, very, very good. good point. So in terms of villainy, do we say colonialism then and genocide as the real villains here? <laughs> well, um, there are yeah. people who enact the genocide and colonialism. We can't just like retreat it as this like floating thing in history that oh, it just happened, you know. Um, <laughs> well, I think Odin gets. I mean, the other thing is that Odin like kicks off all these problems by banishing Thor in the first place, which like ultimately works out okay because Thor gets his hammer and he gets his power and stuff, but. Um, my my question is, why did this need to happen? Because, like, if Thor, you know, turned into a bad person, which I don't think Thor even was at the beginning of the movie. I think he's, like, you know, not very bright um, and maybe kind of reckless, but I don't think he's a bad person. Um, and so we're supposed to believe that either he became, he was a bad person and 10 minutes on Earth fixed him. So it's like, who made him a bad person in the be to begin with? if he only needed 10 minutes on earth to fix him or alternatively, he was never that bad a person. It's just that Odin has a messed up idea 
of like how to actually instruct his children, you know? So yeah, I, I think, I think it really keeps coming back to Odin as far as the, the villain of Thor, the first Thor movie. Yeah, I, I can definitely swing with that because yeah, again, Loki has every right to be angry. Did he have a right to take it that far? <laughs> no, but yeah. it's all Odin's fault. Truly. It is. Although I really don't want to let Loki off the hook for attempted genocide. Um, because <laughs> the thing, is, I mean, it's difficult to tell with Loki again, because he's so inconsistent as a character. But my understanding is that in this movie, at least he is acting of his own volition and not being mind controlled. Um, so yeah, uh, attempted genocide is, uh, it's a big deal. It's a big line. I think Loki maybe deserves more, um, criticism for, for that, because that's a pretty extreme reaction. Even if, um, we do understand like why he's angry and why he's frustrated. And again, everything got kicked off by Odin. It's Odin's fault. Odin is also the guy who never even said that like, oh yeah, the war with the Frost Giants ended in some kind of a treaty. He just kind of implies that like, yeah, we beat them and then we won and that's the only way to deal with Frost Giants. So I think it is Odin's fault, but uh, yeah, I don't want to let Loki off the hook here. Definitely not. The dude just... Oh man... I'd, I'd like to think that his problems would be solved with a hug, but nah, this this guy. Um, All right, are we ready to move on? Yeah, I guess the question is like, do we think that Loki and Odin are work as villains? Are they effective villains? Um, is it kind of a problem that one of them at least is not presented as a villain? Like, how how do we feel we would rank them as villains? You know, I don't know. I mean, for both of them, like, I think it's okay if we want to actually jump ahead a little bit in in terms of like their whole trajectory because they appear multiple times um you know so like because like i know loki's presented as the villain this one and then you know in avengers he's like you know done in by the mind stone i guess manipulated by the mind stone and it's like thanos manipulation or whatever we can touch on that later but um you know, and but then, like, by Thor Ragnarok, he's become sort of more of an anti-hero. And, like, but then now with the Loki series coming up, it's we're back to the Avengers timeline. And it's, like, the back to the, like, straight-up evil Loki. I mean, it's a lot kind of up and down there. My understanding was that the whole mind control thing was kind of to pave the way for the Loki series. That, like, the idea was since that they're kind of trying to reset his characterization. Like they could, they came out with that fairly recently, either right before or right after announcing the Loki series as a way of being like, okay. Um, so I know he did some stuff in Avengers, but that wasn't his fault. Okay. We're all cool with him being like kind of an anti-hero. Cool. All right, cool. But again, that, that was my understanding of uh, where he's going to be. But the series, I don't know much about the series, so it could be in the series he's like back to being a full-on villain. But Should be interesting. Yeah, but I, I guess try looking at that whole picture, I mean, you know, I think, uh, I don't know what to think. I mean, like, I really, I really am struck by his relationship with Thor and the complication there, and Thor eventually becoming wiser and being like, you know, 
no, you know, I'm not going to let you turn into a snake and bite me this time, you know. <laughs> um, or like, no, I'm not going to let your um, hologram self, like, fool me this time. Like, he learns. Like, I don't know. I feel like Loki, in a lot of ways, you know, because Thor is just so devoted in terms of his brotherly love. And like, you know, and like in a way, a lot of, you know, naive, naivete, you know, in, in terms of that. And so Loki, I feel like as a villain, kind of teaches him to step back, even though he doesn't lose his love, you know, in general, or his love for like Loki or his family, you know, at the same time, like Thor does become a little bit smarter in terms of his dealings at the same time, a little more savvy, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that there's growth there, like on Thor's part. Yeah, that's a really good point is that like one of the the things that can make like we were saying can make a really interesting villain is that they cause the hero to reflect and they kind of change the 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 hero's outlook or they change them as a character. So that's a really good point you make that Loki as a character has a lot of impact on Thor, who's the, the hero of the series. Okay, so maybe we can hold off on pronouncements on Thor and Loki as villains because we have just a lot more ground to cover with them. Um, and I mean, that could be another point to make about villains in the MCU is that a lot of these villains are only there for one movie. And so there's only so much time they get to kind of grow and change, you know, if they're there for one movie and then they get killed at the end. Um, so I think that that's a question to ask is like, do people say that MCU villains aren't interesting because they're just around for one movie and then they're gone? Oh, that's an interesting point. I didn't think of that. Yeah. Definitely. So yeah, I think that's those are my final thoughts. Although again, I would like to give Doc Thor, the first Thor, some points because Odin, I think, is a villain and he's not presented that way in the story. So I'm gonna gonna mark him down as a villain um, because the movie doesn't really seem to get that he's a villain. So that's that's my takeaway. He thinks he's the hero of his own story. So yeah, yeah. Kudos to the MCU for that. I mean, theoretically, that's a good character. Again, I just think the problem is when the the writers don't seem to get that. Um, <laughs> like the villain, yes, he should think he's the hero of his own story. The writers maybe should also not should not think that. It's just my just my takeaway. <laughs> good point. All righty, uh, what's next up on our list? Ooh, next- you gals' favorite. Woohoo! Captain America: The First Avenger. Uh, I do a hokey accent there. I don't know. This uh, is the point of the MCU where the movies start to get a rhythm at this point, you know? Just... Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to I'm going to start out with saying that I think Red Skull is pretty great um, as a villain. Uh, you know, he is obviously a terrible, terrible person um, and is pretty simply a terrible person and i think that that works just fine for this first movie and for steve rogers as a character and for the world war ii setting like you know he's kind of campy he's kind of over the top but he's also like you know a nazi who wants to take over the world like i don't want nazis getting humanized or made more complicated like they work as just straight up bad guys because you know what they are bad guys Um, so, so yeah, I like Red Skull and I also like how sort of very physically villainous he is and sort of obviously villainous he is because I think that that's going to draw 
an interesting contrast between him and some of the other Captain America villains who are maybe more kind of uh, wolves in sheep's clothing. Um, but but yeah, I, I like Red Skull. You know, he's basically, he has all of Steve Rogers' powers, but none of his conscience, which we've seen a lot before. But again, it totally works with this idea that like the super soldier serum only amplifies what's there. In Steve's case, it makes him a really good person who can also, well, he was already a good person, but because he's a good person, it makes him into a good person who has the power to do good. And with Red Skull, it just makes him strong and, you know, he can just keep doing more evil. Um, it's really about the person that was there to begin with, not the serum. And that's one of the big themes of the movie is that Steve Rogers isn't Captain America or he isn't a hero because he's got big muscles. He's a hero because he's a good person. So, yeah, Red Skull, I think, works perfectly for this movie. Yeah, definitely. Classic good versus evil. I I loved it. Liked him, too. Like, he was straightforward to the point. Just, I do want to take over the world, and you can't stop me. Just, that's all you need sometimes. That is literally all you need to make a good story sometimes. Yeah. And he looks terrifying. Yeah. He yeah. is. Oh, my gosh, yes. And uh, Hugo Weaving, I know he really did not enjoy like the role and all the makeup and everything, but Hugo Weaving is always fun to watch. So he's great in this. This was just one of those actors that really took to the role where it just, I can't imagine anyone else playing uh, Red Skull. You know, he just, Hugo Weaving did an excellent job. Kudos. Okay. Um, yeah, that's... Uh... That's the first Captain America movie. Everything, in my opinion, everything about that movie works. So yeah, the villain works, the hero works, um, all the supporting characters work, plot works, all the just yeah, it's just a little. I think it's a little switch swatch of a movie. You know, everything clicks into place exactly where it should be. Yeah, definitely a plus, a plus. Plus, I like, you know, Red Skull's ending, you know, where he is in Endgame. Just got to watch over a stone all day. It's great. Ah, uh, poetic justice. I love it. Yeah. I'm still a little sad we didn't get to see Steve Rogers, like, returning the stone to its original place and running into Red Skull again. <sighs> but alas. I just look at him, like, so tired. Like, I, I don't even want to. Steve's like, uh, should I fight you? He's like, I don't, I don't even just leave. Just return the stone and go. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that that would probably be how it went. Steve would just be like very confused and Red Skull would just be like, I, it's, I don't care. Whatever, man. <laughs> oh, man. that uh, Yeah, definitely missed opportunity that we never get to see that, but it, it's fine. It's in my imagination now that you guys have brought it up. Okay, so next, should we talk about uh, Loki in Avengers? Is there anything else we wanted to add about him in that movie in particular, other than what we said? Um, yeah, I'm. I'm gonna add that I. I mean, personally, I like the kind of. I think it's a bit of a retcon that he's being mind controlled, but I do like it as an explanation for why I feel like he's very out of character and divorced from his motivations initially because when we meet him in the first Thor, like there's no indication that he wants to be, you know, king of the world or anything like his issue is with his father and 
this internalized self-loathing and like, you know, with his relationship with his brother, like we're kind of told that he resents him. Like, I think it's one point Sif is like, Loki's always resented Thor, but it's like, we, we don't see a lot of that. Um, and so suddenly to have him come out and be like, I am Loki and I want to take over the world and you will all kneel before me more. Ha ha. And this is to get back at Thor because he has a planet and I want my own planet. Um, he just feels like a completely different person with a completely different motivation in this movie. And also like, I have a reoccurring problem with the fact that you know, his, I think that there's a big problem in, in the Avengers for me. I, again, I'm kind of in the minority of Marvel fans who doesn't like the first Avengers movie very much. Um, but one of my issues with it is that they consistently undercut the stakes. And like, I, I get that it's supposed to be fun, but it's also supposed to be a big crossover team up. The stakes are supposed to be high, but we're constantly told that Loki is, you know, messed up and not functioning on all cylinder, not firing on all cylinders, and that like, oh, you must know you're going to lose. And he tries to be like, ha ha, you've gotten these fallen creatures to, you know, to, to take on me. And it's like, all of these people are stronger than you, dude. Like, the <laughs> He's talking about the Avengers like there's some like ragtag bunch of like underdog misfits. It's like, no, these are some of the most powerful people in the world. Like, and you know, it, all it takes is that one, you know, gag that everyone knows where Tony Stark is like, uh, you know, we got a me and a suit and a super soldier and a Hulk and a couple of pissed off assassins and your brother. How do you think you're going to win this? And, you know, I, I hate to say this about Tony, but he's right. Uh, <laughs> right on this one uh so yeah you have that on file i said that um i love that i have that for posterity i'm gonna put it as my ringtone (laughs) nice nice um i meant in this specific context he is right about loki um and so yeah we just keep getting told that loki's gonna lose and his ideas don't make sense and why did he let himself get captured to begin with it didn't seem to do anything that his plan wouldn't have already done. And then also he's like, I have an army, but it's like, we never see his army. We never know how many people are in it. Like just, you know, maybe give us a number, like give us a shot of the Chitari getting armored up before they show up in New York, something to give us an idea that the Avengers are in real trouble here, you know? Um, So yeah, that that's my complaint with uh, the first Avengers movie is that Loki is out of character based on the original Thor and that he doesn't feel like a credible threat to the Avengers. So. All right. Like personally, I think like the Jatari were terrifying first and foremost. Like the fact that they just kept coming from that wormhole did freak me out a little like, Oh no, especially that really huge behemoth looking one, you know? Oh my gosh. If I was a New Yorker, I'd be like, nope, I'm out of here. Oh my gosh, you know? Yeah. I mean, the thing is, like, once it does show up, it's like, oh, okay, yeah, he had a real army. But before that, I mean, watching them, for me, sitting in the movie watching it, I was just like, okay, whatever, this guy isn't an actual threat. The main characters are going to win. And then finally we see the army. And I'm like, okay, yeah, never mind. The stakes are, this is a little better. Like, this feels suitably, like, unbeatable. Um, But... 
yeah, I just, I kind of wish that that had been established earlier on in the film. For a generic villains army, they did a pretty good job. You know, they don't, we don't need to know each individual Jatari's life story. No, all we know is that they will kill anyone who stands in their way and they are overwhelming. You know, yeah. again, generic army, love them. Yeah. And definitely would have cowered, like, had they ever invaded my hometown. I would be like, oh my gosh, no. Yeah. That, that but, is nightmare inducing. Like, but my other question then with the Chitari is like, what do they want exactly? Why are they doing this? Like, you get a sense that they are being controlled by Thanos, but it's like, what um why are they being controlled by thanos where did he pick them up what exactly are they doing on earth are they just gonna kill everything on the planet or like also why are they in new york if the idea is to get like the whole world to surrender like why not drop them on like the united nations building or like (laughs) we have them go to different world capitals at a different time like you know some of them go to dc some of them go to london some of them go to like um, you know, d- yeah, different world capitals all over, you know, and attack simultaneously. I mean, I get that you can't have all the Avengers fight them in the same place if that doesn't, if that happens, but I don't know. Why, why are supervillains always going for New York? That is my question. Why is New York just like a <laughs> in comic books? New York is a cesspool. It's a villain magnet of sorts. <laughs> yeah. Man, Caroline speaking truth. Oh my gosh. Thank goodness you're on our side. Because if you were an MCU villain, you would do it right. <laughs> oh man. Um I I I don't think I would make a great villain, but I mean I would definitely get myself a generic army of monsters, but I would make sure that like I gave them some goals and you know they had some individual monsters leading them. Like, you know, I again I'm totally fine with generic army or generic horde of of bad guys like those work fine you know i'm as you is you like for instance as, as you both may have noticed at some point i am a huge huge fan of like lord of the rings and the middle earth movies so you know yes. i'm not i love a good horde of monsters um but i think you need to just establish a few things like who's leading them why are they are they being controlled or like have they been created for this purpose um and what are their goals i mean if it is just they're gonna destroy all humanity or like they're gonna kill any human in their range like just you know have them say that or something like you know like show no mercy take no prisoners we kill them all or something like you know to to establish that the they're they're here for to do some serious damage you know um so yeah or like I'm again, I'm good with the generic horde of monsters, generic horde of aliens, um, but just I need a little bit more establishment of them. I guess is what I'm saying. Fair enough. All right. So overall, villain C. Give him a C. Yeah. Um. Yeah. I I give him a C minus personally, but again, that's just that's just my uh, personal bias. So I'm not sure because it's it's also tough because like I do think Loki is an interesting character. So like, I want to give him a higher grade, but in this movie, I just don't think he works. So could have had Dr. Doom instead, but they had to send in Loki. No. (laughs) (laughs) 
It's yeah, man. If they had the rights to Doctor Doom back then, um, I mean, I I don't know. Maybe Doctor Doom. Maybe that he would have ended up just being kind of generic too. But um, yeah, no, evil ficus. Remember, evil, evil ficus. ficus. Right. We kind of. I think we kind of have an evil ficus problem on our hands. Oh man, too good. Yeah, but I mean, the other thing too is like I think my issue is that they're kind of playing up this idea that Loki is manipulative and a trickster, but he's not actually that good at it in this movie, at least. Like at, when we get to the point where again, jumping ahead, where like he takes over, he pretends to be Odin to rule Asgard and puts Odin in a retirement home. Like that is some <laughs> good trickster stuff, you know? Like he took over Asgard without having to do any like fighting or use any armories or any of that stuff so like that to me is very in character for loki but yeah definitely fair enough and hey speaking of thor the dark world we are entering into phase two of the mcu now now that avengers is gone you know i'm right right you know iron man 3 comes after avengers that's the start of phase two right yeah i think so our official um Okay, so do we have any kind of wrap-ups for phase one? Not really. Yeah, we just kind of have some one-shot villains, and they've kind of been a mixed bag so far. Yeah, considering, again, that the MCU is just starting off, like you guys mentioned, you know, not not bad. You know, not bad. Passing grade. Yeah. All right, sounds good. So we kick off phase three with... Iron Man 3, which has kind of a fake-out villain in that it's set up um, that the villain is the Mandarin, but it is revealed to actually be a drunk actor uh, played by Ben Kingsley. And the real villain is a dude apparently named Aldrich Killian, um, if I remember that correctly, um, who is played by Guy Pierce, And he's got fire powers, I guess. Yeah, I I had to look it up because, like, when we were talking about the podcast beforehand, like you, Caroline, I'm thinking Guy Pierce. Yeah, that that's him. That's him. Yeah, but I could not remember the life of me for like his villain name or whatever. You know, I I couldn't remember, and I'm thinking, man, this is the guy who I remember when watching the movie at the time was like the guy who kind of tore apart Tony's world. Like you'd think I'd remember him, but I'm like. Ah, what's his story again? Uh, you know, I couldn't remember. I remembered Ben Kingsley's character, though, Mm -hmm. because I remember being disappointed because I love the Mandarin, like really solid Iron Man villain. Like in the Iron Man Armored Adventures, they are the main villain for season one and half of season two, and they were solid. So the fact that it was kind of a fake out with Ben Kingsley was disappointing. I will admit to that because I'm like, one of my favorite Marvel villains. No, you know, I was like disappointed. I will admit to that. But do I appreciate that they did it? Yeah. Yeah. Now that I've taken a step back, I do. And also I cannot stay mad at Ben Kingsley forever. He's Ben Kingsley. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that one is that we have another example of an Iron Man movie where we got two villains and the fun one is a lot of fun and we like him and the other one doesn't quite work. Um, we're starting to run into, in my opinion, there's kind of a this pattern that keeps happening of like 
someone wants revenge on Tony Stark and that's their motivation, but it's like, it's never explored in a kind of meaningful way because like in this case, the guy just like got stood up by Tony, you know, like as much as I dislike Tony and point out that like he creates a lot of his own villains, I'm like, okay, I think this guy overreacted a little bit. Tony was being a jerk. This guy overreacted big time. Um, so we've got a villain whose motivation is just really not very compelling. And again, I, I like Guy Pierce as an actor, but he's just not given much to work with. His plan is kind of all over the place. Although the thing I'll give him credit for is that the idea of using the Mandarin as a fake out villain is really interesting. And the idea of using it as a false flag is interesting. And then also, you know, the thing about the Mandarin as a villain that's always that's challenging from the comics is if you look at him in the comics, yikes, there's just a lot of unfortunate uh, racial orientalist stereotypes that are mixed up in this character. Um, I think Jen brings up Iron Man, the Armored Adventures, and I think that's one of the good, the great things about that show is that it kind of manages to have a version of the Mandarin that doesn't play into those like unfortunate yellow peril tropes, um, but still has some of the original idea of like, okay, he's got the 10 rings and that's where he gets his power from. Um, so yeah, that's to me the only str like played straight version of the Mandarin I like, but everything else I'm just like, oh God, I really hope that, you know, I, I just hope that if, if someone does do this again, or if it turns out like there's a real Mandarin out there in Marvel that they don't act like this comic book character for the most part. Um, <laughs> but I do think that that being said, that's kind of what makes the Mandarin twist actually... Um, kind of have something to say because it's like if you look at the way the Mandarin is presented um, you've got you know he's played by Ben Kingsley who is a Middle Eastern ancestry but he's got all this Chinese symbolism going on but he's also sort of acting like a you know what Americans think a modern terrorist looks like so essentially he's this undistinguished hodgepodge of stereotypes about Asia that all turn out to have been created by a white guy to scare Americans. Um, <laughs> Sounds kind of familiar, actually. Yeah, <laughs> that's Man. actually kind of a good, interesting, like, thematic point to be making about, like, the war on terror and Americans' relationship with other countries. And so, you know, that's one of the reasons I really do like the Mandarin sort of fake out. But the problem is that the like, I like the fact that it turns out to be a white guy in a suit all along, but the white guy in the suit is not very interesting. Darn yeah. it. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Shocking news. White guy in a suit is not very interesting. What? What? Oh, my gosh. My life is a lie. <laughs> Yeah, Guy Pierce just again, I could not remember his name. All I remembered was wanting to punch him for like threatening Pepper. But that was basically it. Yeah. Then Pepper punches him herself because she's Pepper. Um oh, yeah. That was a good point. I mean how so how do we grade it grade him as a villain? Um 
I feel like we've got, I, I'll do kind of the same thing that I do for uh, the, the first surfer for Iron Man 2 is that like the Mandarin slash uh, Ben Kingsley's actor character gets an A or an A minus and um, Guy Pierce's character slash Aldrich Killian gets like a C or something. So unfortunately they kind of end up with a B. Um, I, I'd give him a B plus just because I really like the Mandarin twist a lot. So yeah yeah i can agree with that scoring all right uh so then let's move on to to thor the dark world Ooh. okay Uh. um i know the villain of thor the dark world and i have it memorized because he is so unmemorable he actually bounces back into being memorable by virtue of the fact that he is the least memorable marvel villain he is <laughs> the dark elves, played by Christopher Eccleston. Wow, you even know the actor. You know everything. <laughs> that is how phenomenally unmemorable he is. He is scorched into my brain. Oh my gosh! I just I'm so sorry, folks. I like Thor. I like his his movies, but man, I cannot remember much of the second movie for the life of me. Just, oh my gosh. Okay, so I think of this, like, in a nutshell, I think of this fan art. I don't remember who did it, um, but, like, it was, like, you know, a panel of, like, the the elf, dark elf, you know, saying, like, I want to put the world in darkness. And then, you know, it cuts to, like, Thor and the gang, and Thor's like, okay, but why? And then (laughs) it cuts back to the dark elf, and he's, like, you just see the ellipses above his head. And then he like gets up close to Thor and whispers, "I just want to, okay." <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, that is the problem. Like Thor: The Dark World is another one of those where it's fine, and there is some kind of interesting stuff going on there with like Thor and Loki have to work together, and like how does that work out? And also, um, you know, we get, I think the films kind of start to acknowledge that Odin sucks a little bit in that, like, Odin reacts badly to the attack on Asgard, and he screws that up, and Thor has to basically be like, okay, I've got to go out and do it on my own, because Dad is not going to deal with this problem, and Thor is presented as being right for doing that. Um, so I kind of like that. And But yeah, Thor the Dark World, the problem is you've got... Again, there's nothing wrong with like a generic army of bad guys, but they've got to have a leader who actually has some kind of a agenda or something about them other than just like, I don't like light, you know? <laughs> yeah, they kind of need a motive here, folks, a-, a cause. Like, seriously, if I was someone in a generic army, I want to be able to believe in what I'm fighting for, you know? Yeah. Or, like, you know, at least make them, like, scary or make them, like, weird and creepy or something. Do something to make them intimidating, not just, like, I don't know, a bunch of guys with, like, kind of pointy ears and, like, um, you know, long turtlenecks and maybe some cybernetic stuff, I think. I don't know. I don't remember what they look like. Um, <laughs> that's how Neither that- do I. Yeah. But yeah, I think Malekith, in my opinion, Malekith still holds the title for least interesting least memorable marvel villain so all in favor say aye 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 
<laughs> Seriously, like reach the verdict. <laughs> like out of all the Marvel villains, I can at least remember like actors or little things even here and there. But these guys, I always get nothing. I have to like take a moment to be like, um, oh right, right, dark elves, um, right, you know. Seriously, least memorable villain in the MCU. In fact, I don't even know why we're still talking about them. <laughs> Moving on. All right, time for the Winter Soldier. And not ooh, ooh, here we go. Actual oh. good villains. Yeah. Okay, so once again, I think that the the Captain America movies have very solid antagonists for the most part. I really like Alexander Pierce. Um, who is played by Robert Redford, um, because I think that he is, again, one of those villains who actually is a little more subtle and a little more nuanced in that what he's doing is horrible, but he, I think, genuinely believes that he is making a better, safer world by eliminating people who might possibly challenge the system or might possibly be dangerous before they become dangerous. Um, and I think it's worth noting that, you know, Nick Fury and a lot of S.H.I.E.L.D. was on board with his plan until it was revealed how much influence Hydra had had over it and, like, how far it was going to go. Um, so some of the quote-unquote good guys thought that Alexander Pierce had a point um, before it was clear, like, exactly what who he was and what he was doing. Um, also, I just like Robert Redford a lot. Um, I think he really sells the kind of like, he's a real good actor. I think he sells the idea of like, oh, this is someone you can trust definitely before, you know, learning that you absolutely cannot trust him. Um, but yeah, even like little things like for instance, in the, um, when he has the conversation with Bucky where his housekeeper accidentally sees what's going on. And he says, like, oh, I wish you hadn't done that. I think I, I genuinely believe that he thinks that. Like, he wished that she hadn't come back and he's not happy about having to kill her. But he still does it because, again, he's a terrible person who will stop at nothing to achieve his goals. But I think, yeah, I, I like Pierce. And I also like the idea that he kind of he contrasts the red skull you know red skull is a bad guy he looks like a bad guy he's a literal nazi red skull um and then pierce is someone who does not look evil and he does not think he's evil but he is evil you know hmm. yeah definitely and you really do raise up a good point because honestly, I did not see that coming that he was as twisted as he was. I genuinely liked him. I'm like, oh, great. You know, someone who like cares about Steve and wants him to assimilate right and wants to do well for the world. Oh, yeah. Awesome. And then, oh, yeah. I'm Hail Hydra. Uh, no, no, no. Oh, man. He, he fooled us all. Truly, just wow. And also, I had to explain to my mother, who is in love with Robert Redford, that yes, he played a villain for once instead of the boy next door. And man, he did it flawlessly. He played the villain next door. How <laughs> nice. The villain next door. He seems normal, but he's actually part of a like secret Nazi death cult. Uh... Tinkleberg. <laughs> 
Um, but yeah, that's the thing about, and again, he's also a little bit of a foil to Steve. Um, I, I kind of shared the, the, the fun or potentially not so fun fact that in the 1970s, Captain America was drawn to look like Robert Redford. So we can see Pierce as being kind of another shadow self of Steve in that he is someone who could, you know, I mean, it's hard to say because Steve would never compromise his principles, but like, what if Steve did compromise his principles to go along with, with shield and the whole helicarrier plan? Because, you know, when Fury first set, mentions them, he, Steve's like, Oh no, this is bad. This is going to be abused really easily. Um, and I think that that's kind of part of the point with Pierce is that like, I mentioned the whole idea of like obvious evil versus less obvious evil is like, it's still bad. Bad stuff is still there. It doesn't make it less bad because it's good at dressing itself up. You know, like Steve is still right to stick to his guns and stick to his principles. Um, it's just the world around him is kind of become better at hiding the things he opposes. At least that's my takeaway from the winter soldier. Very yeah. well put. Any other thoughts on Pierce? Other than that I'm glad he went out the way he did. And that I actually felt a swell of rage when we see him again in Endgame. Yeah. Oh, man. You're right. I, I forgot about his cameo in Endgame. That that was pretty great. Oh, man. The fact that I remembered him and immediately thought, you, <laughs> like, shows that he did an excellent job as a villain. A plus, in my opinion. Also, like, I, I mean, you know... This is kind of deviating from Pierce, but like talking about Hydra as a whole, like, like you know, I guess I have so much more like Hydra lore inside my head because of Agents of Shield, <laughs> you know, and them as like an insidious organization that infiltrates Shield, you know, I think is like, I think is interesting, like how that happens, and I don't even think it. I think it's very realistic in certain ways, you know. You think about you know, certain ideologies and how they infiltrate, you know, um, like, you know, media companies or, or, you know, uh, or corporations or, you know, or like nonprofit nonprofits or like whatever organization or like, or government entity you could think of, right. And like, of like the whole, like working within the system and using the system to like, to put in your, your agenda in all its various ways, you know, it's like it's very insidious, insidious and very realistic in that way, which is like terrifying. Yeah, definitely. This yeah. kind of corruption happens all the time. It's scary to think about. Yeah, it is. And like that's I think that that's the thing about the Winter Soldier that gets I think some of uh, the, the film that sort of gets overlooked when people are like, oh, it turns out it was Hydra all along, so nobody else is complicit. It's like, they've all been complicit. That's why Steve says, like, S.H.I.E.L.D. needs to be basically um, burned to the ground so we can start again, you know? He's like, this is, everyone has been complicit. Everything has been, it's been so fully corrupted that it's completely lost its point, or it's lost the the original idea that it was founded on. Um, and so, and also just the fact that like so many of these powerful people are involved in Hydra means that like they were still, a lot of them were still elected or appointed to their positions by other people who may have been in Hydra or may have just like heard their, you know, the stuff that they were peddling and been like, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know, as long as you don't come out in the open and say what you really are, like, I'm still going to agree to your ideology if you phrase it a little bit differently. 
um, which is, yeah, terrifyingly realistic. I think that uh, this film in, in, I don't know, I can't help but feel that this film was kind of uh, prescient um, in some scary ways. So. With all that, I, I don't even really want to talk, talk much about Brock Rumlow. <laughs> He'll come up later. I guess is more Dude of a tried too bigger. hard. Mm. Yeah, he tried way too hard. Yeah, I, I feel like he's kind of a. I mean, he works for what he is. You know, if he were the main villain, he would be a problem. But he works just fine. as like he's the muscle. You know, he's there for some fights with uh, with the heroes, and that's kind of what he does. You know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. His fight with Sam was iconic. You know, when Sam's just is like, "Dude, shut up." <laughs> because that's exactly how I felt the entire movie every time this dude opened his mouth. So yeah, definitely worked well as a as a muscle, like you said. Yeah, Sam Sam Wilson is always relatable, and he's he's almost always right. So yeah, listen to Sam. <laughs> Very good. All right, next up, uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Ronan the Accuser, aka Lee Pace, with really really bad eyeliner. That joke never gets old. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. Also, we can't see his eyebrows because he's covered in blue paint. <laughs> yeah. Seriously, like, I, I have mixed feelings about Ronan personally. There are moments where I'm just like, "Man, you devious bastard!" Because you know, genocide. Really, that's that's a no-no. But at the same time, I can't remember his name half the time. Like, I remember his actor. I remember the mascara joke. But sometimes I'm just like, the heck is his name again? Yeah. I, for me, Ronan kind of falls into the category of like, he's not the most deep, not the most interesting, but I think he gets the job done really well. Um, you know, I compare him to like, I think with the Guardians of the Galaxy, there's a lot of comparisons you can make to the first Avengers. And one of the things about Ronan is I think he kind of, because he's not a huge present, he sort of steps back and lets the big cast breathe. Like, he basically just kind of comes in to be like, you know, I'm Ronan, and I speak with a real deep voice, and I'm a real serious, nasty guy, and I'm going to blow up your planet, and I mean it. Um, And that's really all there is to him, but it's like, to me, he presents a pretty credible threat. to the main characters. And also, you know, the main characters are really good at getting in their own way. (laughs) (laughs) The villain means that the villain doesn't have to do too much to be successful in this scenario. You know, so much of the conflict comes from the guardians themselves. Yeah. They're their own worst enemy. Yep. So yeah, I won't say that Ronan is an amazing character on his own, but I think he he fits the story he's in quite well, in my opinion. So would we give him an A? Um, let's see. I I don't know. I I I don't want to give him an A because again, he could be more interesting or more memorable. But I also, again, wouldn't want him to have too much development because I kind of feel like that would take away from all the the fact that we have multiple main characters we are introducing and setting up at the same time. Yeah, I'm not a big fan just because he seems more like a kid also whenever he's like pouting to Thanos. I'm just like, I'm just so not impressed. (laughs) 
Yeah. <laughs> You're right. I think that that's one of the issues with him is the fact that he's answering to Thanos, which doesn't make a lot of sense, again, in the grand sort of meta storyline but also yeah it does it you're right it diminishes his uh, mystique and his power because if we one thing if he's you know just a, a nut job who's got a lot of power who's kind of on his own but if it's like if he's getting everything from thanos and then he comes back and he's like well i couldn't fix it give me more money or more infinity stones or can i have your daughters to help me like you're right that does kind of make him seem uh not not as intimidating as he should be yeah (laughs) you know it's just so funny because like this guy is the literal embodiment of racism like he hates this one planet this group of people for reasons and he wants to eradicate them yeah hence the genocide alright, cool, whatever, but then you step back and knowing Thanos as how we know him, you wonder why he recruited Ronan in the first place. Is it just because the dude's got kind of a following on his side? Is is that it? You know, because when the way Thanos treats him, you know, is kind of like an annoying underling or whatever, like you would think Thanos wouldn't recruit him in the first place, especially considering who he has on his side, who are way more powerful and way more of a threat in a lot of ways objectively i guess yeah so i I don't understand why thanos has ronin in his ranks but you're right caroline he does ronin does serve his purpose you know he gives the guardians a challenge but not like a thanos level challenge but enough of a challenge to establish the characters as a team and to kind of drive the plot forward yeah, but that's a good point that you bring up about Ronan and, like, why is he here and why is he connected to Thanos? Because, like, the other thing about him that I think is kind of interesting is that the Kree, he's technically a Kree, um, uh, I don't know what their titles or anything, but he's in charge of a Kree warship. So he's he's getting his backing from the Kree. And they claim that they're not, like when the the president of Xandar is trying to be like, hey, do something about this Ronin guy. They're like, uh, sorry, not our problem. Which I think is (laughs) why that the Kree basically are either turning a total blind eye to what he's doing, or they've actually given him, you know, at some level he's on working under their orders. Um, Which I think is just way more interesting than the idea that he's working for Thanos. You know, I think that that, um, I mean, that also kind of plays into this angle when you said he's kind of an embodiment of racism in that, like, he's obsessed with wiping out this race for, you know, reasons that make no sense. And also he's kind of pathetic and, like, needs someone's help to do his job. Yeah. Uh, but thinks he's a member of the master race, you know? Uh, <laughs> But that might be kind of interesting, this idea that the Kree are, even when they're making a treaty with Xandar, they're still sending him out to either, like, make their negotiations harder or to, like, make it clear that they're still in charge. Or they're just like, yeah, we don't care if people, if our people kill non-Kree, you know. Um, that that could be a lot more interesting. But that's that's not explored in, in the movie or in the subsequent movies. But, but yeah, okay. Never mind. I kind of take back what I said. I would like a little bit... I'd like Ronan could be improved in that respect. All right, cool. I I made Caroline change her mind. I feel so accomplished. Um, yeah. <laughs> um. Okay. Next up, we've got uh, Avengers: Age of Ultron. 
and the villain's name is in the title, and yet, not really a villain I look up to a lot. You know, okay, you know what's funny, Jen? You remember that anime movie you got me about, like, the Avengers kids and, like, them growing up in a world where all their parents are dead and, like, Ultron has taken over the world? Is, yep. that the one, is that the one where Natasha and Steve have a son called James? Um, yep. Yes, I wasn't going to point that out, but thank you. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, well, I was going to say, though, I feel like that Ultron is, like, more scary than the one in Age of Ultron. Yeah, because, like, from what little I know in the um, comics, Ultron is a threat. Like, I've read comics for the... Uh, Marvel comics where they've actually referenced Ultron even after he's been defeated or whatever where they're just like oh my gosh yeah we can't let this be like Ultron all over again and not like in the terms of oh Tony Bruce you made the mistake don't make another Ultron no 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 not like nothing like that but like when the Avengers have faced other villains and they're like yo we cannot get this threat again we cannot have another incident like Thanos where the human race was almost wiped out and yet the way he is in the movie, like, he, again, it's the pieces are all there. He's got potential, truly. But it just doesn't work. You know, I can't take the dude seriously when he's singing There Are No Strings On Me, you know? Yeah, that's pretty ridiculous. <laughs> I thought that even in the trailer. I'm like, why? Why? Yeah, definitely. Well, before we proceed, I do just want to share with our listeners that um, so we've got a little... Uh, sheet that we've been referring to to make sure that we know all the characters names and we don't just like use actors as placeholders on our list for villains for this movie it was ultron then maximoff twins then brutasha (laughs) jen you savage (laughs) writing brutasha as a villain in my defense am i wrong Rutasha is a great villain. <laughs> way angrier than Ultron ever did. Uh, when I hear Brutasha, I freak out. I'm like, nope, nope, nope. Even more so than I hear Ultron, you know? Yeah. Like, just, no. Personal opinion? Yes. Am I in the majority of that opinion? Probably. Did it actually cause some harm in the movie? Why, yes. Yes, it did. Did it har- cause harm to characters? Why, well, yes, yes, it did. <laughs> Why, well, yes, yes, it did. You know, just so yes, Brutasha is a villain. I will stick to that. <laughs> uh, very funny, very funny. But all right, but we should get back to Ultron though and his ridiculousness. So his plan is like he goes to the internet. Instead of going for nuke codes, which they think he's going to go for, he decides to turn Sokovia into a meteor. Right? Yep. I'm remembering this correctly? Yeah, yeah. That's... Uh, just use nuke codes, okay? Like, I don't... Uh, okay. His- There's so many... So many things wrong with that. Like, there are plenty of ways to destroy the world, but now nah, let's just... Sokovia, why not? Why not? They. We don't need that one. We're, we're filming in this location. We've already got all the shots set up. That way we can get the whole gang back there. And uh, that's where the Maximoff twins are. And we're trying to set them up as characters. So, so yeah, everything has to go back to Sokovia, even if it doesn't make sense. Even even though we ended up going to Korea for like a hot minute for um, 
reasons. Uh, reasons. But yeah, I am I am with both of you. And I think the fact that like you point out that in the comics Ultron is much scarier. In a kid's movie, he's scarier. In, um, <laughs> another uh one of my like favorite uh I think uh, animated things involving the Avengers is Avengers Earth's Mightiest Heroes. That's a real fun cartoon. Um they have a good Ultron arc where he's intimidating. Um yeah, Ultron has a lot of potential. You know, it's very classic. He's a cyborg who thinks that humans are too unruly to live, and so he wants to wipe them out. Um, that is That should work. That should be fine. But the problem, I think, with the movie is that his whole thing is that humans are not logical. They are irrational. They are violent. And he in himself is not logical or rational. Like he is not cold and detached the way a robot who wants to destroy humanity should be. He's jokey and quippy and he sings Disney songs and he clearly has some kind of issue with Tony and he clearly has affection for Wanda and Pietro and it doesn't, and he kidnaps Natasha just to have someone to talk to like his personality doesn't make any sense. Hmm. Seriously, just he's a walking contradiction. Just yeah. oh my gosh. He is. Like his plan makes no sense, his personality makes no sense. And like again, it wouldn't necessarily be wrong to have a quippy, weird, quirky, kind of over-the-top villain who isn't good at being a villain. Like that character could be really fun. But the other problem is that Age of Ultron is trying to position itself as the darker second chapter. You know, it's trying to, it's not trying to position itself as the last bit of fun before Civil War or before Thanos or before any of these other things. It's trying to be like, and this is the dark movie where we get to see into the characters' heads and break them apart. And it's like, okay, if you want to do that, Ultron needs to be a dark villain. Like, he needs to be an intimidating villain. He also shouldn't have the kind of, like, you know, sense of humor and kind of grandiosity and camp that Loki had. He should be all business. You know, if this is the idea that it's the the darker sequel to the first Avengers movie. And um, also that it's an AI, like you were saying. Yeah. From an AI perspective. Mm-hmm. Also, I remember this one Tumblr post that pointed out how, like, basically he was only able to, like, quote unquote, do his, you know, do his thing for like two or three days, and then they defeated him. So it wasn't really an age of Ultron, more like a weekend of Ultron. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that. that is a very good point. Like, there isn't a huge, yeah, he's only around for a short amount of time, um, and. The thing is, he causes a lot of damage. We know that he causes a lot of collateral damage to Sokovia, but there's still never a sense of, like, this is going to be the final battle for the Avenger. Like, I don't know. Again, I don't feel that sense of stakes and tension with this character that is he's supposed to um, give off. You know, we're clearly supposed to see this as, like, you know, the fight of their lives or something where they could really, really lose, but it just doesn't come off that way. And again, part of it is that Ultron cannot take himself seriously as a villain. (laughs) We can't take him seriously as a villain. So. Yeah. And I mean, I think that this is like, 
Okay, I I tend to blame a lot of the problems with the movie on Joss Whedon. I know it was fashionable to blame everything on Marvel's interference, but honestly, I see a lot of like Whedon hallmarks that are or like the worst of Joss Whedon in Ultron personally. Because like I'm a big fan of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and I like some of his other TV work, but just you know to make that clear, he wasn't the only writer on some of those shows. Um, and he wasn't the only person making choices with this one, but a lot of the choices I like the least come from him. And I think one of the reoccurring problems he has as a writer, even in stuff I like, is that he's really addicted to like campy, jokey villains, even when they don't fit the tone of the story he's telling, in my opinion. So, um, that's kind of my, my diagnosis of what went wrong with Ultron. And then, okay, so we talked about Ultron. Do we want to talk about the Maximoff twins? Because, like, they're a little bit complicated in that they start out as antagonists and become kind of join the, the hero team. Uh, yeah, it makes sense to talk about them. Yeah, like, honestly, they both have the potential to be a really good duo villain. I mean, you've got the witch who can insert thoughts and bring about your worst fears. And you got the guy that no one can catch. Yeah, that's terrifying. So I was honestly relieved when the tides turned and they went against Ultron. But I know that's more out of self-preservation on their part. Because, you know, uh, we live in this world too. We don't feel like being destroyed. Yeah. Yeah, I... For me, I think that, like, Pietro, I, I never thought was that interesting. And when he died... It didn't really work, but at the same time, I'm like, okay, I don't miss him. Um, and then Monica <laughs> is a character who I potentially, like, I really want to like her consistently because I think she is really interesting. And I like Elizabeth Olsen's portrayal of her and, like, some of the character beats she gets, especially in Civil War, I really like. But, yeah, in this movie, um, she's just kind of like, I feel like she's just kind of like an accent plus trauma plus kind of like weird mannerisms you know yeah i don't know it's also been a while since i've um rewatched ultron so i don't remember like too many of the beats other than like when she starts reading i think it's i don't know if it's technically called vision yet but like they're building like the vision body and like Mm -hmm. she's reading like kind of ultron's mind and that's like when she realizes oh this dude is like the worst yeah Um, (laughs) you know it's 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 interesting that that's like that's like a turning point for like her and for um Pietro but like her 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 powers though really have that terror to them and like I think we're going to get more of that with WandaVision and um uh Doctor Strange the next Doctor Strange movie for sure like will she go like into like that villainous side like again and worse I don't know Ooh, yeah. If she does, that'll definitely be worth watching because, again, she can literally make you believe your fears are going to come to pass, plus, like, a million other telekinetic things and such. That's terrifying. Yeah. If she does remain a villain, you know, turn back to villain, I would honestly be scared for our heroes. Yeah, she's extremely powerful. Um, And, again, you've got this issue of, like, her power set, it starts out as like mind, you know, manipulative visions plus telekinesis. Then it just kind of gets turned, it stays as telekinesis for the next few movies. Um, and now presumably in WandaVision, we're going to see the mental stuff back again. 
Um, and the thing is, it's a little tough because again, for me, I come back with this to this issue of like villains who want revenge, but whose grievances are never like seriously addressed. Um, because like sometimes their grievances are dumb and it's just there to kind of kick off the plot. But with Wanda and Pietro, I think that they have a really good point they're making about how like their parents were killed and they were abandoned on the streets. And because of, you know, arms dealers, specifically Tony Stark, and it's implied like American military interference and a civil war in their country. And it's like they have been through so much and it's understandable that they would see the Avengers as a force of uh, chaos and destruction in the world. And it's like that. And I get that the movie is kind of trying to address that by being like, but look, the Avengers save people. So they're good. But I think that they have like a personal issue that is, could be more addressed, you know, um, in terms of like why it is that their lives are the way they are. But again, it's kind of at the end, it's just like, well, we all have to team up to fight Ultron because Ultron is going to destroy the world and we all live on the world. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, yeah, so none of the antagonists in Ultron are, are particularly... I don't think... Yeah, I don't think... I think we've come to the conclusion that none of the antagonists in Ultron really work or are very effective or are very enjoyable for us. So, what... Do we have, like, an overall grade for them or... Uh, I don't know. C plus? B minus? I'm going with a D. D? Oh, <laughs> the first D. Oh, Honestly. yeah. We have Tasha. Okay, D. Yeah. Or yeah. wait. Did, did Malekith get a D or did he just get us like a C minus for being too bored? I don't even. We did, I don't even think we we forgot. We forgot to give some of these movies a grade. <laughs> yeah. You're right. No, I wasn't give them a grade. That's how forgettable he is. Okay, that's the joke. That's the joke. <laughs> You're right. He's just like a non-applicable or like a pass fail or something. <laughs> Dude. Yeah. So okay. So I think we're at a good stopping place here. We've got a lot more villains to cover. Basically, only halfway through all the. Are the all the Marvel villains, or even all of the Marvel villain arcs? Because some of them have yet to conclude um, in our in our series here. But yeah, how how y'all feel? Still awake, still alive, and now I really want to watch a movie with a good villain. Doesn't have to be Marvel. I, I'll take Disney at this point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that sounds sounds good. Yeah, I think. Um, I think it's been interesting to see us also sort of bring in some other media we've got as uh, counterexamples for for good villains. And um, maybe we can, you know, like add some of our favorites to the next uh, episode or something. But yeah, I think it is interesting how consistently the Marvel cartoons are sometimes better at doing villains than <laughs> these. And I can't tell if that's because like... Um, I think that maybe it's because as cartoons, they do have more time to build out their antagonists or like, I think it's funny because Saturday morning cartoon villain used to be the go-to for like bad, forgettable villains. But it's like, I think a lot of cartoons have better villains than live action media. Mm. <laughs> um, even, you know, especially kids cartoons. Like I think of some of my favorite villains and a lot of them are from kids cartoons, you know? Hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
Agreed. Oh, food for thought. Um, but in the meantime, thank you all so much for listening to us, you know, gavel on about, about the Marvel villains. It was really fun talking about them. And thanks for bringing us the idea, Caroline. Oh, of course. Thank you so much for having me on this podcast. It is always so much fun to chat with you guys about Marvel. All right. Well, if you want to keep up with what Nerd Alert Girls is doing next, you can uh, follow us on Tumblr at nerdalertgirls.tumblr.com or on Twitter at nerdalertpod if you have any questions or suggestions on what you want to see on our podcast. And anyways, thank you all so much for joining us, and we'll see you next time on Nerd Alert! All right, bye. 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 Bye.